Hey, it's Pastor Mike. Before we get to today's episode, I want you to know that we at Time of Grace have a ton of resources to help you in your walk of faith. From our TV program, to daily devotions, to our Grace Talks video devotions, to podcasts, to our blog, to books, to other books, till still more books, uh, whatever you're looking for and however you best learn, you can stay rooted in Jesus by taking time out for God's word every day. If you're interested, just go to timeofgrace.org to sign up for our daily email. Is it possible to get kicked out of heaven? Uh, recently, someone asked me that question at our church's question and answer Sunday. Is it possible to get the boots out of paradise? And the Bible's answer is no. Can we do the next video now? <laughs> yeah, that's, that is really the short answer. If, if you make it to heaven, if you die with faith in Jesus, you don't get a probationary period in paradise, right? You don't got to walk straight and, and make sure you're holy. Otherwise, Jesus will give you the boots. Um, now, there's this great promise in the scriptures that once you make it out of this great struggle that we call life, once you make it to heaven, you will get to be in God's presence forever and ever and ever and ever. Now, what's the proof of that? Um, I love Revelation chapter 7. Uh, John, uh, the Apostle John, sees this massive multitude in heaven of people from every nation and tribe and people and language. They're wearing white robes. They're worshiping Jesus. They're standing with the angels in the presence of God. And um, in verse 13, one of the elders asked me, these in white robes, who are they and where did they come from? And he said, these are they that have come out of the great tribulation. Right, so they've escaped the, the troubles and tribulations of this world. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the lamb. They've been made holy and clean because of Jesus. Therefore, here's my point, they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. Never again will they hunger. Never again will they thirst. The sun will not beat down on them nor any scorching heat. For the lamb at the center of the throne will be their shepherd. He will lead them to springs of living water and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. That's, that's beautiful, isn't it? And did you catch the words? Never again. Am I going to get kicked out of heaven and back to the great tribulation? Never again. Once I'm enjoying the presence of Jesus, will I ever have to leave? Never again. God, there's power in those words, aren't there? Like, yep, in this life, like this week, it's probably going to happen again. You're going to be hungry again, thirsty again, exhausted again, anxious again, tempted again. You might struggle with a relationship again or with mental health again. You might grieve again. You might shed tears again. But once you make it to heaven, never again. I love that. In the presence of Jesus, never again. You're never going to have to apologize for anything again. You're never going to have to be afraid of things going wrong tomorrow ever again. You're never going to suffer or or be sad ever, ever again. He will wipe away every tear from your eyes and never again will you struggle. 
The great war will be over and you will be in the presence of the Prince of Peace. So it, it might seem like a curious question. Can you get kicked out of heaven? The Bible's answer in Revelation 7 is a source of immense comfort. No, never again. I can't wait to see him face to face. Can you? Come quickly, Lord Jesus. Recently, our church had a question and answer Sunday, and someone asked me a question that no one's ever asked me before. The question was this. What's the difference between a Christian's spiritual discernment, it's a fancy phrase I'm going to define in a second. What's the difference between a Christian's spiritual discernment and the inner monologue of their own conscience? That's pretty deep, huh? <laughs> One of the tougher questions I got on that Sunday. Like, how do we know whether the Holy Spirit is guiding our thoughts and our reactions to things? And how do we know if it's just us? Like our own conscience, which might be right or which might be wrong. It's a great question and here's why. Because the human heart is a lot like a piano. You probably heard some pianos sound beautiful. They're accurate. They're, they're pitch perfect. And, <laughs> you ever played one of those old pianos? Maybe your, your grandma has one that hasn't been used in decades and you like try to play the simplest little Mary Had a Little Lamb and it just sounds so, so off, right? Because over time, uh, it, it loses its calibration. It, it stops being pitch perfect. It, it, it just strays and drifts bit by bit until it's way, way off. And the human conscience is the same. Uh, I think in the book of Ephesians chapter 4, the Apostle Paul talks about the world and how its conscience is darkened and it's calloused and it's corrupted and it doesn't function like it should. You know, you do the bad thing enough times, it stops bothering you. And so that's a really great question. How, how do we know the difference between the Holy Spirit telling us this is good and this isn't and our own conscience, which might be right and might be wrong? Here's the simplest answer that I have. Check the Bible. Like, okay, I, I feel like this isn't what I should do, but what does the Bible say? I really think that God is leading me towards, okay, but what does the Bible say? You have a sinful heart within you. The devil is working like crazy to lead you astray from God. The world has a million ideas it's going to share with you. So we we really can't have like a guaranteed for sure this is what God wants until God speaks to us and tells us exactly what he wants. So maybe the best thing that we do can do to stay constantly tuned into the voice of God is to be connected to the word of God. It's actually what Jesus prayed um, the night before he died. In John 17, he's uh, breaking into this huge prayer in the upper room. And in verse 17, he says this, Father, sanctify my disciples by the truth. Your word is truth. As you have sent me into the world, I have sent them into the world. For them I sanctify myself that they too may be truly sanctified. So the disciples are being sent into the world on this great mission. Whoa, the world has so many ideas we know the disciples are very, very flawed. So how are they going to know what's going to guide them? Jesus says this, Father, would you sanctify them by the truth? And here, here's the truth. It's your word. 
Now, recently, um, I studied for a sermon series on the idea of our thoughts. And as part of that, I looked up every single passage in the Bible that used the word think or thinks or thinking or thought or thoughts. There were hundreds and hundreds of examples. And what was so, so interesting as I read through those examples is how often people thought wrong. Right? Um, Samson thought that he would escape like he did before, except he didn't. The Philistines captured him. Uh, Mary Magdalene on Easter morning thought that Jesus was the gardener. Where, where have you put my Jesus? She asked Jesus. She, she thought wrong. So often what a person sincerely believed and felt and thought was, was just off. Their, their conscience wasn't working. And that's why I, I love this. God sanctify them by the truth. This is one of the huge reasons I would love for you to start each of your days with even just a little bit of Bible. Let our Heavenly Father, the perfect tuner, guide your conscience. So when you're sent into this world like these disciples, you'll know exactly what to say that's good and right and noble and true, just like God. That's how you tell the difference. Keep the Bible open and our Heavenly Father will sanctify you by his truth. How do we know that the prince of darkness used to be an angel of light? Recently, someone texted me that question, "Uh, Pastor, how do we know that the devil is a fallen angel? Where is that teaching in the Bible? The interesting answer is it's not on the, the first pages. If you'd start reading your Bible from Genesis chapter one, you'd see that God creates, that everything is good, Adam and Eve, Garden of Eden, paradise forever. And then you get to chapter three and the serpent, the devil shows up and he is far from good. He's a liar, a manipulator, a deceiver, one who brings death and the fall into sin. So if you're reading the Bible from the beginning, it begs the question, where where did he come from? So the serpent is the devil. He's fighting against God and his goodness. But what, what happened? Well, later on in the Bible, there's a number of clues, then a a number of specific passages that fill in the rest of the story. I want to share one with you from the book of Jude. So way, way, way near the end of the Bible, it says this. This is verse 6. The angels who did not keep their positions of authority but abandoned their proper dwelling, these God has kept in darkness, bound with everlasting chains for judgment on the great day. Hmm. It's an interesting line. Angels, right? We think God created the, the angels, these spiritual beings. They did not keep their positions of authority. So they didn't stay as these authoritative angels. No, what did they do? They abandoned their proper dwelling. These God has kept in darkness. So we know that at some time in history, good angels fell from where they were. We call those formerly good angels demons and we call one particular fallen angel the devil or Satan. Uh, the same thing comes up in a related chapter, 2 Peter chapter 2. Uh, the language is pretty similar. It, it says this, If God did not spare angels when they sinned, but sent them to hell, putting them in chains of darkness to be held for the judgment, 
Then he goes on to teach. So angels sinned. God didn't spare them, but he judged them. He condemned them to hell. Ah, okay, so we find out there are fallen angels. They fell because they sinned. God judged them. Satan was one of them. And it makes you wonder, well, what did they do? <laughs> like, if, if you're an angel, you're in the presence of God. Like, everything is perfect. It's like you're in heaven itself. There's God on the throne. He's good. He's righteous. He's beautiful. He's loving. Why would they possibly fall? Well, there's a lot of debate around that question, but there is one, one hint that I've always thought to be true in the book of 1 Timothy chapter 3. So in 1 Timothy chapter 3, uh, my Bible calls it qualifications for overseers and deacons. So this is like what kind of person you have to be to be a, a pastor, a leader in the church. And in verse 6, um, the Apostle Paul says this, The overseer or the pastor must not be a recent convert or he may become conceited and fall under the same judgment as the devil. So if you're a brand new Christian and then like a week later you're standing in front as the pastor, it would be really easy to be conceited, to be proud, to think you're a better Christian than all of these people. I mean, look at you. You're you know, leading the church after such a short amount of time. So the Apostle Paul is warning about that and he said that would be the same judgment as the devil. So put all those passages together and we kind of come up with this story that the devil was an angel who became conceited. He was proud. Like in, instead of honoring God as his superior, he wanted to be God. He wasn't content being a spiritual being who submitted to the Father, Son, and Spirit. Like he, he wanted, he was conceited. He was proud. He was arrogant. That was his sin and he was judged. And now ever since that judgment, he has been trying to make people arrogant too. He's been trying to make us proud. He's been trying to make us think that bowing the knee and submitting to God, calling Jesus Lord, denying what we think and want and saying, Father, your will be done. He's, he's been trying to make us think this proud thought that that would be bad. That following God isn't good. Eat the fruits. He, tempted Adam and Eve, you, you won't die. You're going to be fine. You're going to be like God. And so today, um, this isn't just a, a random biblical concept. It's practical for us. Fight against pride and conceit. Believe that God in his very heart is good no matter what he says. Follow him no matter how narrow the road. May we not fall under the same judgment as arrogant, conceited people who don't trust our Father. He gave us Jesus. It's proof of his love. We can trust him no matter what. What can we do to love same-sex couples who adopt? Um, that was the exact question that someone asked me in church the other day. We were having our annual question and answer Sunday and someone asked, well, what about non-traditional families? I think is how they phrased it. Uh, a gay couple, uh, a lesbian couple who adopts, uses IVF. What does Christian love look like if this is your, your neighbor or your coworker or your friend? What does it look like to love them in a Christian way? That's a huge question.
I mean, so much of that question is, as you're listening to it, uh, is kind of based on, you know, what do you think about sexuality and biblical Christianity? And for me to answer all of that question, you know, what does the Bible say? What does love look like? How did God create us? What about the fall into sin? Didn't God make us this way? Should we really be judging each other? All of those questions are hugely important questions that I'm not going to have time to answer today. So I want to give you a quick resource and then I want to get back to the, the question. The quick resource is a little book that I wrote called Gay and God. All right, you can find it on the Time of Grace website, timeofgrace.org. Go into the store, search Gay and God. Lots and lots of people have read this book. It's a four, really four sermons that I preached on the entire topic of sexuality. They're going to try to answer all of those questions. But we don't got time for all that today. So I'm going to try to be direct with this question. What does it look like? Let's say you're a Christian. Um, let's say that you assume that biblical sexuality uh, doesn't accept or endorse same-sex relationships, but you still want to be a loving person. Well, what do you do? Well, if I could zoom out maybe one step, I, I think the bigger question is, what does it look like for Christians to love people who don't believe what they believe or behave how they think we should behave? You know, if I have an atheist neighbor who doesn't believe what I believe, if I have a, a Buddhist friend who doesn't trust in Jesus as his savior, you know, if I have a, a buddy who's sleeping with his girlfriend before marriage and not honoring God's design and, and order for things, what is it, right? There's all kinds of people who believe and behave differently. So what does it look like to love them? Well, there's a, a lot of things the Bible says to that, but let me give you just a little paragraph to get you thinking. This is from Mark chapter 1. Here's Jesus, son of God. He's perfect. <laughs> and he's going into this world where all kinds of people don't believe the right things or behave in the right ways. Uh, listen to what Mark chapter 1 says. Jesus went into Galilee proclaiming the good news of God. Right, so he, he went he didn't just stay and wait for everyone to come to him. He, he went in love. He proclaimed the good news. Like, there is a God. He's a mighty king. He can keep you safe from guilt and shame, from sin and death, and tell the, the good news of God. And, and listen to what he says next. The time has come. Like, now's the moment. The time has come, Jesus said. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent. And believe the good news. What did Jesus himself do when he walked into a world with people who didn't believe or behave like he did? He went to them. He shared good news with them. And then he invited them to repent and believe the good news. He invited them to join him in the kingdom of God. To live under God's almighty authority. And to live and enjoy God's amazing safety. That's what the kingdom of God is. So back to the situation at hand. Let's imagine your next door neighbors, uh, same-sex couple. Uh, they've adopted some kids. Say your views on sexuality, morality are different. What do you do? Well, if Jesus is an example, you, you go. Go love them. <laughs> go say hi. <laughs> Invite them to your table. Like Do life with them. Just like Jesus did. He reached out to Matthew, the tax collector, and his friends. He, he did life with people who had different sexual lifestyles than he did. He, 
In fact, the religious people grumbled about it, right? Why is he eating with them? He went just like this. So you go. Love, show compassion, listen to their stories, hear where they come from. And then, if God opens a door, proclaim the good news of God. It's like share what's so good about our faith, that there's a God who knows us, who loves us, who invites us into his family, a God who sent his son for us, a Jesus who gave his life for us. There is grace and mercy and redemption and justification. We have hope. We have a future. We have heaven. We have eternal life. We have the Holy Spirit. We have the family of God. Like this is the, this is the good news of what it's like to be a follower of God. We proclaim it and then we can invite them. Like the, the kingdom of God has come near. It's, this good news is not far away. You don't have to travel to get it. It's right here. I'm, I'm sharing it with you. So repent and believe the good news. I should probably have a whole separate video on that little phrase, repent and believe. Uh, repent basically means to change your mind and submit to God. Give him the last word on what's right, wrong, what's good, bad, how you're going to live and what you're going to do. Agree with him that sin is sin, that good is good and bad is bad. Repent. Don't try to be the king, submit to the king and believe the good news. That no matter what kind of family you have, no matter what your choices, your past, your beliefs or behaviors, the good news is that right now, this king is reaching out to you. He has a place in his kingdom for you. The walls of his grace and love are strong and they will keep you safe for all eternity. Like that's, that's not just my good news, that's your good news. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. Now, I know that's probably not going to happen the first time you knock on their door. But invest and invite and evangelize. As God opens a door, as it says in Colossians chapter 4, like pray for wisdom to say the right things. Don't, don't be shocked if everyone doesn't agree with you. that They didn't with Jesus either. But this is the best thing that we can do in a world where people believe so many things and behave in so many ways. Go proclaim good news. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe it. It's for you too. Is it wrong to give sinful children an inheritance? Uh, recently at our church's question and answer Sunday, someone posed that question to me and I've actually never had to answer that before. <laughs> I think I can follow the logic just from the question. You know, you only have so many dollars to give in an inheritance. You want it, those dollars to be invested in things that, that bring good into the world and spread the name of Jesus. So if you're children aren't followers of Jesus, if they don't share his passion and share his values, is it, is it wrong for you to give those dollars to those kids instead of to other causes? So I should tell you before we started this video, uh, I was just like staring at my closed Bible thinking, huh, <laughs> what, what, what passage am I going to turn to to answer that? What, what exactly does God think? I mean, we should, be, we should be generous with all kinds of people, right? Not just fellow Christians, but, you know, I see good stewardship. You want to make the biggest difference so the light of Jesus can shine brightly. Does the Bible say anything about right or wrong in this situation? And then, 
And then I thought of the story. This isn't a comprehensive answer to that question, but I think it answers directly, is it sinning to give an inheritance to a kid who isn't godly? Remember Jesus' story from Luke chapter 15? The parable of the prodigal son? Jesus continued, There was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So he, the father, divided his property between his two sons. Not long after that, the younger son got together all he had, set off for a distant country, and there squandered his wealth in wild living. All right, so here Jesus tells a story about a father who had this younger son who was not good. He's not godly. He's not living to worship God. He's living wildly. And he says, give me my share of the estate. And the father, who in the story represents God, he gives it to him. Now, I don't think Jesus was specifically trying to answer the, the question about inheritance and morality, but th that's a clue there that if this was absolutely evil and absolutely wrong, if we were only supposed to give money or an inheritance to people who are good and godly, well, that kind of makes God less than good and godly. <laughs> so here's my simple answer. Is it right or wrong to give the money or not? No. Are you sinning if you bless financially someone who doesn't follow Jesus? No, that's not sin. You know, your hope is that you, you give the inheritance and maybe like the prodigal son, your godless children come to realize that this world is temporary and empty and doesn't satisfy. You know, maybe one day they kind of come back to our Heavenly Father in repentance, knowing that they've sinned. So I just want to take that burden off of your shoulders. You can divide the inheritance as you see best. It's not right. It's not wrong. It's not sin. It's not obedience. Pray to God for wisdom. Pray that he would change your children's hearts and then act accordingly.